Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. So to piggyback on something that Leslie just said, I, I too want to just thank you. Um, one of the dominant characteristics of this church that I've noticed over the last 23 years is just how generous people are and how much they're willing to give and help those that are in need. And so I just want to say again, thank you so much for what you've done to pack all those shoe boxes and provide for them and to help with the shipping. That's incredible. Now, I don't know how many boxes there are in the back there, but each one of those large packing crates they have anywhere from about 15 to 20 shoe boxes inside. So that gives you an idea of how many shoe boxes we're talking about. It's over 2,000 and some shoe boxes that are back there in the corner of the church. And it's not just from the chapel, but a lot of people from our community as well. There was one family that came in on Friday and they had 25 shoe boxes their family had put together, which I thought it's a big family, I guess. Or maybe they got all their friends and extended family to help out. But either way, it was absolutely incredible. And I just am so excited that we have this global outreach to be able to help children receive the love of God and, and hear the gospel as well because every one of the children that receives the shoebox will get to hear the plan of salvation, how to trust in Christ and begin following in him. And I just think tremendous impact in their, their families. I was reminded after the first service that it's not only to countries around the world outside the United States that get these shoeboxes because sometimes there are catastrophes in our own country and children that have lost everything wind up getting these shoeboxes as a way of encouragement and love for them too. A, a recent example was after the hurricanes and flooding in Houston, Texas, many, many children, hundreds and thousands of children in the Houston area receive shoeboxes as well. So you never know. Your shoebox might go to an overseas country, but it could wind up being here in the United States as well. And I just wanna say thank you for that. And thank you too for your, I'm saying this in advance, for helping with Ruth's Harvest because this is just very important that we support not only global outreach but our local outreach as well. And so helping the children in our, in our community have food over the weekends, this is a tremendous way. And you know what, I, don't, I feel guilty all those Christmases that I complained about getting underwear from my aunt. I just, I am, I am not gonna do that anymore, I promise that. Okay, so if you ever hear me gripe I'll, about, well, you wouldn't hear me gripe about that, but just in case, all right, as well. You might be wrestling with a little bit of giving fatigue or serving fatigue or something like that, but I, I want to encourage you that if God is working in your heart and you say, Lord, I really want to do something to help the children, I really want to do something to pack a shoebox or send the shoeboxes. God is stirring in you. He will provide, and he will provide through you to be able to do this. This is why we're doing all this kind of stuff. This is why we care about Ruth's Harvest. This is why we helped at the carnival, uh, at volunteered at the Fireman's Carnival in August. The reason we're doing all this is because we believe that we have a responsibility in our community to do good works. And the reason we're doing good works is to build goodwill. We want to build friendships with the people in our town. We do. We don't just want to be the little church that's off in the woods out of town. We want to be people that folks can come to and trust and believe in, and we believe in them. So we are doing good works to build goodwill, but our bottom line goal is this, to share good news. 
Doing good works is not the gospel. Building goodwill is not the gospel. It's when we tell other people about Christ, the good news that they can be forgiven and loved and accepted by God. That's the good news. And so we're doing good works to build goodwill, to share good news. That's what this is all about. And that's what we're striving to do here at the chapel as well. And so that's why it's not about us. It is not about us. It's about Jesus and his great love for other people as well. And that's what we're working on and sharing about this time. And I hope this Christmas season, we don't forget about that, but keep that front and center as well. So we've been talking these last several weeks about the family of God and what it means to come on home and join his family. And we've looked at the fact that we need to be forgiven by God and reconciled to him. And we've talked about the fact that he's prepared a home for us in heaven, a destiny that we can experience, a hope that we can have. And we've even talked about the quality of life with God, that there's a a characteristic of everybody who's born into the family of God. We share his eternal life. We share his life. And we have life with meaning and life with purpose and value and, and life with significance. And all of this is true, the abundant life that Jesus offers us as well. But as we, in a sense, land the plane in this whole discussion about the family of God and coming on home and joining that family, I want us to zoom in and focus on this very last important principle for us to grasp. And that is simply this, is that when you and I join God's family, there are tremendous privileges that come to the children of God. And I wanna talk about the three great privileges you have if you're a child of God that you enjoy because you are God's son or daughter. I just hope you'll grasp this because a lot of us view the Christian faith as a burden or going to church as just something we do on Sunday mornings, a club we go to or an organization, a charity that we're part of, a a community service group that we're part of. It's bigger than that. It's a family. It's a family. God's forever family. And you and I have the privilege of being part of that forever family when we put our trust in Jesus Christ and are born again. I'd like to show you these three great privileges in the book of Galatians chapter four. And I invite you to turn there in your Bible and let's follow along. I'm reading on page 974 if you'd like to use one of the Bibles from the chair in front of you here at church or you could look it up on your own uh, tablet or smartphone. But uh, Galatians chapter four, verse one. I want you to listen carefully to this. The Apostle Paul writes to these early Christians and he says to them, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Would you read verses four and five with me, please? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. Now, this paragraph 
you can tell that there's been some important discussion before and afterwards. And it fits in the middle of a very important discussion that God wants us to understand. The book of Galatians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians who had become followers of Jesus about, a, about 10 or 15 years after Jesus had died on the cross and rose from the dead. And so the whole Christian faith is brand new. They're just figuring out how to explain what it means to trust in Christ and follow him and what is God's truth and plan for our lives and who is the Holy Spirit. And, and all of this was just brand new to people. And because it was so brand new, people were easily being led astray and led off course when it came to what it really means to follow Christ and that was true of the people that lived in Galatia. Galatia is a, uh, the northern part of the modern country of Turkey. It used to be called Asia Minor uh, back in the first century world and, and in this community there had been a group of false teachers who came through and said if you really want to grow as a Christian you've got to become Jewish first. And I know that sounds funny to us most of us are not of a Jewish background, but they said, you know, the very first followers of Jesus were Jewish and they were keeping the Ten Commandments and they were eating kosher and they worshiped God on the Sabbath day. And men, by the way, they were circumcised. Sorry to be a guy, but anyway, it's just, it was all this idea of you've got to obey the laws of Moses, the Jewish laws, before you really can grow as a Christian. And this letter that Paul writes to these early Christians is to say that's not true. When you think about it, how in the world did you become God's child? How in the world were you born again? How did you become a, a member of God's family? You became a member of God's family not by keeping the Ten Commandments. You became a member of God's family when you trusted in Christ. You were saved by faith, by faith in Jesus, relying on him to forgive you and accept you into God's family. And God gave you his spirit because of that faith that you have in him. So if you're going to grow in that relationship with God, if you're going to understand the fullness of what it means to be a member of God's family, it's not by adding now a bunch of rules and hoops that you have to jump through to somehow earn God's favor or, or get his recognition or gain his approval somehow, merit his blessing in some way. No, it's not that. You just keep doing what you're already doing. Keep on believing, keep on trusting, keep on walking in the power of God's spirit. It's not by keeping a bunch of rules and regulations. And he points this out by saying at the end of chapter three, who are the heirs of Abraham's promise? Remember Father Abraham? You know, we sing the song, he had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. That guy is found in the book of Genesis. And he's the father of the Jewish race. His descendants are the Jewish people. And God had made tremendous promises to Abraham and to his descendants, to the Jewish people. And, and God, Paul is saying, well, who is it that really gets all those promises? Who really are the people that, that receives that inheritance? And he explains in verses one through seven, this opening paragraph of chapter four, here are the people who get the inheritance that was promised to Abraham. It's the people who are the sons and daughters of God. And he's going to expand even further what that inheritance looks like because there's three great privileges that come to the children of God. See, this is the beautiful truth. You and I are no longer slaves of God. We are the sons and daughters of God. And that changes everything. Every religion of the world views God as a master, a boss, 
a tyrant or a king that somehow we have to submit to and surrender to and serve like a slave. I mean, think about Islam. The, names, the name Islam, the, the name for Muslim is somebody who submits, somebody who yields, and they view Allah, the great one and only God in their view. He's just a master, a ruler over the universe. He's not our father and we are not his children. We are his servants. We are his slaves. And Judaism and the other religions of the world tend to view the God and goddesses that they serve as these big taskmasters that rule everything and we have to submit to them and we are their slaves. We have to do what they want. We are not their children. We, they are not our, our father. And the Christian message, the message of the gospel is that God, and these are the words of Jesus. I mean, think about it when we pray our Father, when we pray the Lord's Prayer. We call him our Father because that's how Jesus prayed. And that is a radical change that we view the God who created the cosmos, the God who made and owns everything that, that, that there is. That God wants to be our Father, our loving personal Father. And we can be his children when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. So we're not his slaves anymore. We're his children. But it's important to understand that not everybody gets to be the child of God. Not everybody gets to be a son or daughter of God. And he explains that in verses 1, 2, 3, and the beginning of verse 4. Because what he points out in verse 1 is really the nature of all people before they put their trust in Jesus Christ is that he says very simply, we're like immature children. We think we know how to know God. We think that we know how to have a relationship with him. We think if we do these religious rituals, if we believe these religious tenets, if we practice these religious rituals and somehow God will be pleased with us. But what Paul is saying, no, we're like immature children when we do that. We really don't know God. We really can't communicate with God. We really can't find acceptance with God. And he uses this illustration from the first century world to describe a person who's been designated to be the heir of a great, wealthy, lavish inheritance, but he's a minor. He's somebody who's still underage. And he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child and literally an immature child who's not even able to speak intelligently, as long as he is a child, he's no different than a slave, even though he owns everything that there is. You can think about someone like um, Prince William or Prince Harry, the sons of Charles and Diana. And there they are. You know, William is third in line to the, to the throne, you know, behind his grandmother Elizabeth, his father Charles, and then there's William. And, and then William has children, little Georgie and, and Charlotte and the others. And, and th they're in line for the throne. And, and, and the point that he's trying to make is that, that William, when he was little, even though he was the king of, of England, he receives none of that without having also a guardian and trustees and tutors and supervisors to help him understand what that's all about. He doesn't get all the blessings of the throne yet because he hasn't reached maturity. All people are like that. We're created by God. God has love for us. He has a plan for us. He wants to offer that, that abundant life, that home in heaven, the, the blessings of his gifts and his presence, this salvation. He wants us to experience it, but we can't experience it on our own. 
because we're spiritually, intellectually, emotionally immature. And we can't figure it out on our own. We're immature. We're, we're under tutors, he says. And we're under guardians and these managers and trustees. It says in verse 2, that person, even though he's the owner of everything and destined to receive it all, he doesn't get any of it until the time appointed by the Father. He's under managers, guardians and managers until the date set by his Father. In the same way, he says, we also, talking about Jews and Gentiles, everybody who's outside of Christ, whoever they are, he says we, talking about himself and talking about his readers, we, in the same way, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. See, this is the second problem that people have, why they naturally, by themselves, can't know God and experience his blessings and and, and be members of his family just on their own. We're enslaved. We're not just an ignorant. We're not just immature and unknowing, but we're, we're enslaved, he says. We're in bondage to something that keeps us from knowing God and experiencing his love and forgiveness and family. And he says that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And you might be wondering, what are those? And it does sound a little cryptic and hard to understand, but, but in other places in the New Testament, we read one several weeks ago when we were looking in Colossians chapter two, we saw that the elementary principles he's talking about are things like earth, wind, and fire. No, not the band, but just the, the, the primary physical elements of our universe. And so the ancients would say things like earth, things like water, things like wind, things like fire. And, and those are the elementary principles, the building blocks of the cosmos, the building blocks of this world that we live in. But they also understood that it was more than just the physical world that they were looking at. They saw that behind these physical properties and these physical components of the world, there was something else going on. There was a spiritual world underneath it all. And they understood that there was an angelic, demonic, supernatural realm that was working as well. And those ultimately were understood as the basic principles of the world. Not the wind, but the demons behind the wind. And not the earth and not the water, but the demons and angels behind all that. The spirits behind all that. And not just the fire, but the angels and the demons that were behind all that. The spirits. And so the whole magical realm and incantations and, and all of this witchcraft and things, the occult was a way to try to manipulate those spirits to get life turn, to turn out better than the way you wanted it to or the way it was happening at that time. Paul is saying that behind every religion, whether it's the Gentile pagan idolatry religions or Judaism, or Protestant Christianity, or Islam, or Hinduism, or Buddhism, or atheism and agnosticism, whatever religion it is, there is some kind of demonic power behind it all. Working through it. Enslaving people. You may think that you're religious, and somehow you're earning God's favor, but Paul is saying, no, you're actually a slave in this case. And you may be worshiping and you may be giving. And he says, no, you're actually in debt and you're deeper and deeper in slavery. You're not free. You're not part of God's family. You're not experiencing his love and acceptance. You're living under the, the cruel tyrant of that religion and the demonic powers behind it all. 
I mean, that's a whole new perspective to think about religions in this world, to realize that there's an unseen supernatural dimension behind it all. We think that all religions are leading us to God and actually all religions are leading us away from God. What we need is a relationship with Christ. He's the only way, the only way that we can know God. He's the only truth that we must believe. He's the only one who's the source of life. We have to trust in him with all our hearts because he's the only one that can bring us into the presence of God. Anything else is leading us away from God. It's deceiving us, it's holding us in slavery, and it's leaving us ignorant of really what God wants for our lives. And so Paul is saying we're not automatically members of God's family. We desperately need God to intervene and do something. And that's why verse four then starts with the word but. And again, it's one of these places like a lot of us preachers make a big deal about is there's this was true and this was true, this was true, but God did this. And there's this divine interruption where he says, whoa, 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 put on the brakes. I'm doing something new and different to change this situation. I'm so glad God interrupts this in this way. He interrupts human history. It says in verse four, but God, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And that's what we're celebrating as we enter into the Advent season. You know, Advent's that time of year where we slow down. It's almost like the ancient church understood (laughs) that Christmas would get so crazy and so chaotic here in the 21st century that thousands of years ago they began practicing Advent where the Sundays leading up to Christmas, they would say, whoa, 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 slow down and let's remember what we're celebrating. Let's remember why Christ came. Let's remember why he entered into the world. Let's remember what he did when he came. It's not just about the presents and the parties. It's about the fact that Christ came, God in human flesh, to rescue us. And that's what he's saying here in verse four. But when the fullness of time came, just as when, it, when a father would determine it's just the right time for that son or daughter to receive the inheritance, at the fullness of time, when the time was right, God sent forth his son. And he says two things about God's son that entered into this world. The son came on a mission and he entered entered into our world. And he says that two things happened when he did that. He said he was born of a woman and born under the law. When he says born of a woman, he's not so much emphasizing the virgin birth, although the scripture clearly teaches that. He's not emphasizing that as much as he's emphasizing the fact that he was born as a human being. He came and was clothed in human flesh. When the son was born into the world, he was born as a fully functioning human being. Yes, an infant, yes, a baby, but he was born as a human being, just like you and I were born as human beings. He became one of us as a human being. But it also says that he was born under the law. And those rules and regulations that the Jewish people were trying to keep, you know, eat kosher and keep the Sabbath day and honor the Ten Commandments and obey them and guys go get circumcised and all this kind of stuff, all these rules and regulations, Jesus lived under that. And he kept those laws perfectly. He was a good Jew. And he was faithful in his obedience. And he worshiped God and he honored God and he loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. He was perfect in every way that way. He was born under the law. He was born Jewish. He entered into the same bondage, the same legalism, the same rules and regulations that you and I, if we've been religious people, 
or moralistic or ethically driven people, we've live un lived under the same kind of rules and regulations and bondage as well. He entered into that voluntarily. And it says that he did this in verse 5. This was the purpose. In order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The reason why Christ came was yes, to tell us about God and yes, to give us hope. But bigger than that, he came to rescue us, to redeem us. And that word redeem simply means he came paying a price to set us free. He came to set us free so that we would no longer be slaves. Now in the first century world, when two armies would fight against each other, two different countries, they would fight against each other. And when the battle was over, one of the armies won the battle and they would capture all these prisoners of war and those prisoners of war would be, those that weren't executed would be taken back to the home country and they would be put into slavery. They would work in the mines, they would work in the fields and agriculture, they would be on the ships, they would be slaves, they would be working very hard, dangerous, back-breaking work. Many of the younger people, the younger children and women that were captured, they were made slaves too, but they were made sex slaves. They were trafficked, forced into prostitution, forced to do that. And so you can imagine that being a prisoner of war and forced to be a slave in that way, it was a terrible thing. Some would rather fall on their sword and die on the battlefield than be taken a prisoner. But the thing that was interesting was that that conquering country would make, send a message to the country that had been conquered, defeated. And they would say, if you want to buy your loved one who was a soldier or captured in battle, if you want to buy them out of slavery, you can. Here's the price. And if the family was able to get the money together, if they were able to do that, then they would pay the price, they would pay the ransom, and they would set that woman, that girl, that boy, or that man free. And they would be able to come back home. A ransom was paid in order to set the slave, the prisoner, free. Jesus Christ came into this world, born of a woman, fully human, born under the law, fully Jewish, in order to redeem those under the law, to pay the ransom price to set them free. We were enslaved by sin. We were enslaved by our guilt. We were enslaved by our shame. We were helpless to try to live a life that truly honors God and blesses other people. We, we were in bondage. And yet Jesus Christ paid a price to set us free. Now you might be wondering, what's the price that he paid? Well, if you just hold your place there, Galatians chapter four, and just flip the page over to chapter three. Turn to chapter three. And I want you to notice what it says in chapter three, verse 13. In fact, I want you to notice it so much, I want you to read it with me, please. <clears throat> Galatians chapter three, verse 13. Let's read this good and loud, okay? So the teens downstairs hear us, all right? Ready? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So there, very, very simply, I just want you to notice that sentence there. Christ became a curse for us because cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
You see, in the first century world, if you were a criminal that had committed a capital crime, you had murdered somebody, you had kidnapped somebody, you had raped somebody, you, if you were found guilty of that crime, you were executed because Rome was all about law and order. And so they would execute that criminal. But they would not only execute the criminal, they would publicly hang up their body of the, the criminal, the corpse of the criminal that had been executed. They would, they would hang it from a tree or they would hang it on a wall. They would hang that body up. And this was not just in Rome, in Roman law, but it was Jewish law. It was all throughout the Middle East, through the Mediterranean basin. They would not only kill the criminal for their crime, but they would publicly humiliate that criminal and his family by hanging the corpse up. And they would do that to ridicule him, to shame him, to embarrass him, to just heap humiliation on top of the death as well. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, Paul had said, or rather, excuse me, Moses had written to the people of Israel as he was giving the, the law of God. He said, listen, anybody that gets hanged like that is under a curse. If your body is hung from a tree after you die, you're cursed. And Paul takes that in the New Testament era and he says, you know what? Jesus was cursed for you and for me because his body was hanged on a tree. That's a euphemism for the cross. He was hung from a tree. And so as Jesus, when he was crucified and hung there, people insulted him, people humiliated, the shame of God is upon him. Even today, Jewish people cannot understand how God would allow the Messiah to be hung from the cross. That just does not compute with them because it's such a shameful thing. And yet Paul says that's exactly what happened. You see, that's why Jesus was not stoned to death. That's why Jesus wasn't beheaded. That's why Jesus wasn't hung from a noose. That's why Jesus wasn't shot with arrows by a firing squad. It's because he had to be hung on wood with nails and to be humiliated and to die that way. He took the curse of our sin and our shame upon himself. And in the process, he sets us free when we trust in him. So the curse that's hanging over me and you, that curse is removed. That judgment that we deserve because of our sins and shame, it's removed. God frees us from that because Jesus took it for us. He suffered it for us so we could be forgiven by God. So, so as Paul is teaching the, Roman, the Galatian Christians here, he's saying, listen, <laughs> you've been forgiven by God. You've been forgiven. Not only have you been forgiven, but you've been set free. And I don't know about you, but at the top of my Thanksgiving list, I always tell God, thank you for forgiving me because I don't deserve it. And I always have a long list of things I'm very glad he's thank that he's forgiven me for. And on top of that, I even say, thank you for forgiving me and thank you for setting me free. Thank you that I don't have to keep going back and repeating those sins. I don't have to keep going back and doing the same thing over and over. I thank you that you set me free. I don't always obey and don't always turn away, but I thank you that I'm free, that I don't have to anymore. But Paul says salvation is even better than that because getting saved and having God rescue you and me is not just about being forgiven. And it's not just about the freedom we have from sin and shame and guilt and death, but it's about becoming members of his family. And because look what he says in verse five. In verse five, he says this, to redeem those who are under the law, set them free so that 
we might receive, what's the next word? Adoption. Adoption as sons. You know what God wants to do? All the sinners and all the people who are ashamed and all the people who are guilty, and that's me and that's you and every other human being who's ever lived and is living today, wherever they may be and how religious they may be. We are sinners. We've hurt ourselves, hurt other people, and offended God. He wants to take those people and he wants to forgive them and he wants to free them and he wants to make them members of his family through adoption. Now, in the Roman world where Paul is writing, he wants us to understand that this adoption is a little different than what you and I are used to because we think about you know, somebody maybe going to China and adopting someone, a little baby, and bringing them back or another country. Or maybe they, like my, my son and daughter-in-law have done, they've adopted children out of the foster care system in the state of Indiana. And so now there's a little six-year-old grandson and a four-year-old granddaughter who are part of our family that biologically they are not but now there are grandchildren and it's a delight and a privilege. I'm not talking about somebody getting adopted when they're little babies or, or toddlers. In the Roman world, when a, a young person reached the age of 14, 15, 13 years of age, somewhere in there, if dad was wealthy, he would say, I'm going to publicly adopt this son or daughter. Even though they're my flesh and blood, I want to adopt them and I want to make them my son or daughter. And I want to publicly declare that not only are they my offspring, but they're my heir. They're going to receive the inheritance of everything that I have. And there were other couples that did not have children on their own, and they saw maybe someone they considered promising, a young man, and they would say, we're going to adopt him to carry our family name, and he's going to get the inheritance, all our property, all our possessions, everything that we have, our legacy. It all goes to him, and we're adopting him into our family. And Paul says that everyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ, they get adopted into the family of God, not just forgiven and not just set free. They become God's family family they belong to him and he belongs to them and that's what God does and he wants you and I to understand that listen the first great privilege that comes to a person who trusts in Christ the first great privilege of being a member of God's family is this you have a new identity you are no longer a slave now you're a son or daughter of God. Now, some of you are reading this passage and saying, how come Paul keeps emphasizing sons and sons and sons and he never says daughters? What's wrong with Paul? Is he a chauvinist? Is he sexist? What's the problem here? And that's a fair question to ask. Our culture is a little different than the first century culture. Because in the first century world, the only people that receive the inheritance, and this is almost all the time, not every time, but the vast majority of the cases, the person that received the inheritance was the son, not the daughter. And so the son would get the inheritance and the son would get adopted and the son would receive all these rights and privileges. The son would carry on the name and carry on the legacy and have all the property and possessions of mom and dad, not the daughter. Oh, he was responsible to care for, for his sisters. But the daughter didn't get the inheritance. The, the son did. The males did. And I just want to point something, else, something out to you. And it's this. In this passage, he's saying that every person here, male or female, is getting treated like a son. Every person. And so there are people today who live in cultures that are very patriarchal in nature. 
and the girls are treated second class and it's only the, the sons that people want to have born. I mean, you can go to China today, there's a whole generation of women that are missing because when it was the one-child policy in communist China, all the girls were aborted or put out and exposed in the open to die, infanticide. And you had parents saying, no, no, we've got to have a son. We can't have a daughter. Oh, it's terrible to be a daughter. Got to have a son. And so the girls were, were lost, rejected, because mom and dad didn't want a daughter. They wanted a son. Now they have all these young men that don't have wives because all the girls are gone. This passage is saying that people in that culture that are treated second class, everybody's getting treated first class as a child of God. Everybody that was left out and excluded before now gets included. Everybody that didn't receive anything, they get everything. All of us, men and women, boys and girls, old and young, white and black, new to the faith, old timers in the faith. We're all on equal footing because we all share the identity as the sons of God. And we can say sons and daughters of God because that's just a little easier for us to understand. But God is treating everybody that comes to him as one of his sons, fully invested, fully privileged, fully blessed, fully welcomed, fully recognized as the heir to the family. So you might need to you know, take that home and chew on it a little bit and reflect on it, but God is not treating you like a daughter. He's treating you like a son. And that's a more privileged position in the first century world. And that's a good thing. But God loves you, dear sister. God loves you, dear brother. God honors you and respects you, dear brother or sister, for the way you are. And he loves you and he wants you to know that all of us in Christ have that privilege and that position and that identity as being the children of God. It's a privileged position. It gets even better because not only do we have this privilege of a new identity, no longer are we slaves, but we are the children of God, the sons and daughters of God. But then notice what he says in verse six. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And that's the second band that we're talking about today, but it's not that band. It's actually a name for what a child would say in the first century Jewish culture what he would say or what she would say to their daddy. Papa, daddy, dada. It's not a sign of immaturity. It's not a sign of you know, uh, irresponsibility. It's a sign of close, endearing relationship, a loving intimacy between that son and that daughter, uh, that son and daughter with their father, calling him daddy, calling him papa. Now, you have that, I, I, have, I have friends they still call their, their 80-some-year-old dad and their friend, you know, my friends are in their 60s themselves. They keep calling dad, they call him pop. Hey, pop, like that. And they, they keep doing that. And it's a term of endearment. I think sometimes it's a term of, of frustration, but, it's, but it's, there's a term of endearment. And I love it when my four-year-old and three-year-old and eight-year-old and the others, the grandchildren call me papa. Hey, papa. I remember being on vacation and one of the children was upset because it was bedtime and I kind of walked in the room and her back was to me and she was kind of sassing her dad a little bit. And then she turned around, and she goes, Papa. And it was like, yeah, you better be on your good behavior now. Okay, you know, it's, it just, it was kind of like everything just changed. Papa, you're here, yeah, I am, how you doing? 
It's a term of endearment, and he says that God, just as he sent forth his son into the world to die for us on the cross, to be hung on the tree and cursed for us, in the same way God now sends the spirit of his son into our hearts, sends him forth on a mission, and the spirit's mission is to stir up in us a desire and love for God, so we cry out to God, and we say, Abba, Daddy, Papa. Again, not because of immaturity, but because we're dear to him, beloved by him, and he to us. See, when I think about my identity with God, I need to change how I see myself. I'm no longer a slave. I'm now a son. I'm no longer a slave. I'm now a daughter of God, a blessed child of God. And when I become a child of God, my view and understanding and perspective of God changes. He's no longer a policeman. He's no longer some tyrant or taskmaster. He's no longer a slave driver. He's my papa. He's my daddy. He's someone I love and I trust and I know he will come through to help me, protect me, lead me, and provide for me. He's there for me. He's someone who loves me. Maybe your dad didn't love you the way you needed him to love you. He's only human. He, he failed, I'm sure. You could ask my kids and they'll tell you I've blown it as a daddy. But all of them will tell you they know I love them. And they love me. Your heavenly father is far better than any earthly dad you could ever imagine. And he's your papa. He's your dad. He loves you more than anybody else. And that is such a privileged position of intimacy that comes because we're members of God's family. What a great privilege, a new identity and a new intimacy. But it gets even better. And that's why I'm so excited to share this with you today. Because not only do we have a new identity with Christ, not only do we have a new intimacy with Christ, but we've got this new inheritance. And notice what he says in verse seven. The spirit cries out through our hearts, earnestly cries out, Abba, Father. And then he says in verse seven, kind of summarizing it all, he says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now I want you to do something. Take a pencil and I want you to circle the first you in that passage where it says, so you are no longer a slave. Circle that or highlight it somehow, put a check mark. That's you singular. Everywhere else you see you in this passage, it's you plural, you all. Youns, yins, okay, whatever you wanna say. Use guys. It's a plural, but there in verse seven, it's singular, and he's saying you are a child of God. You are a son of God. Not the person next to you, but you, he's saying. Not the other guy in the back who's been here at church longer than you. No, you are a child of God. Not that guy who seems so holy. Not that lady who's got her act together that you admire. No, you, my friend, you are a child of God. And since you are no longer a slave, now you are a son of God. If you're a son, then you're an heir. This is the personal privilege of everyone who is a child of God. You have an inheritance coming. Now, every now and then people will talk about, you know, this, there was this lawsuit, it's a class action lawsuit, and if you feel like you've been offended or violated in some way, then you apply to have your name part of the lawsuit. And then when they talk about, well, here's the settlement, and you get your share, it's a couple bucks. 
will be. And he's not saying, here's this big gigantic share, uh, share of the inheritance, here's this big gigantic inheritance, and here's your little teeny tiny sliver of a share. And he says, here's your rich inheritance that you get. What is the inheritance we get? What's so special about it? Well, the Bible talks about that eternal life is our inheritance. And the Holy Spirit is our inheritance. And salvation is our inheritance. And, and the new heavens and the new earth are our inheritance. And meek inherit the earth. Remember the earth. And so all of this is ours. And this is our possession. But the biggest part of our inheritance is this. God is our inheritance. We get him. And if we get him, then we get everything that we need. I remember as a child, there was one year where I was just starting to kind of understand, I think, the whole Santa Claus stuff going on with Christmas. And I remember on Christmas Day, I received all these presents, but I didn't get the one thing I wanted. And I remember seeing Santa Claus, and this is where you talk about how pagan I was. I, I looked at that Santa Claus picture, that doll, whatever it was, and I remember saying, next year, I want this. And I was already putting in my list 364 days from now. It wasn't enough. What I got wasn't enough. When you have God, you have everything you need. You've got more than enough. He's there for you. Everything you've got, everything you need, He has for you because you've got Him. He is our inheritance. That's what makes it so special. He owns the universe, as we read in Psalm 50. He owns all the cattle. He has all the beasts. He owns everything that there is. It all belongs to him. If it all belongs to him, he has the capacity to take care of you, no matter how poor or how sick or how alone you feel. He will take care of you. He will provide for you. He will meet your needs because you've got him, and he's more than enough. But have you ever thought about this? Why does God give himself to us as his inheritance? Why do we get God as an inheritance? That's because we are God's inheritance. We are his inheritance. When we read in Ephesians chapter one, we see Paul praying a prayer that he wants us to learn. And the prayer says something like this, that we would understand the riches of the glory, the glorious riches of God's inheritance in the saints. God says, you know what I want more than anything else? I want you. I treasure you. You are my inheritance. And because I am your inheritance, you are my inheritance, I am your inheritance. Because I've got you, you get me. And all that I am and all that I have, you get my love that never ends. You get my presence that will never leave you. You get all my provisions. You get my total resources of the entire universe. It's all yours because I am yours and you are mine. We're family. It's your inheritance. So I tell you, you might not be excited about going home for Thanksgiving. I understand why you might not be. But I tell you, if you join God's forever family, 
You put your trust in Jesus Christ and begin following him. Look at your birthright, a new identity. You're not a slave anymore. You don't have to try to earn God's approval. You don't have to work for his favor. He already loves you and favors you and shows grace to you beyond anything that you and I could ever do to try to earn a merit. He already loves you lavishly. And he this brand new, not just the identity, but do you see this brand new intimacy? You can go to God in prayer at any time because he's your papa. And he's listening to you. And he gives you his undivided attention because you are his beloved child, his son, his daughter. And do you see how great your future is? He's your inheritance. Whatever comes, whatever happens, God is there, he is with you, and he is for you. He belongs to you because you belong to him if you've ever put your trust in Christ. What a great privilege we have being the sons and daughters of God that we would share this life, this inheritance and identity and intimacy with him. Man, there's nothing greater. There's nothing better than to be a member of the family of God by trusting Christ and following him. Would you join me in prayer, please? I thank you, Father in heaven, that you want us sinners, us rebels, your own enemies. You want us to become your children. And I thank you that you sent Christ to die for us so that we might be freed and forgiven. But even more than that, you sent him that we might become your children, your family. Thank you. I pray that, Lord, you would teach us to trust in him, to rely on Christ alone for our forgiveness and acceptance with God, to become members of your family. And I pray, Father in heaven, that you would help us let the Spirit lead us day by day. Thank you that you give your Spirit to every child in your family. And I ask that, Father, we would cry out to you in prayer, that we would hope in you as our inheritance, that we would stop trying to work for you, but instead because we love you and we're grateful that we would serve you with thankful hearts because you're our daddy, our papa. Thank you. Thank you for giving us yourself. Lord, thank you that you're our inheritance too. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.